You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine. It's Ben Folks. Ben, episode 101. We're forging into the triple digits uh, with our heads held high and our eyes toward the future. It's Monday about noon. We're recording this uh, episode of the podcast a little bit early because what's going on? You're, you're ski-daddling to, to Florida or some damn thing? Yeah, going to Florida, going to see my parents who retired to Florida like uh, people do, apparently, um, which means, you know, a couple cross-country flights with a one-year-old should be interesting. That's right. You bought that iPad uh, a couple of weeks ago after months of making fun of me for having and using an iPad. You bought one allegedly to uh, keep your daughter entertained on the flights i don't like your use of the word allegedly there i'm just saying i've been over to your house a few times and i have not seen your daughter use that ipad once the only person i've seen use it is you (laughs) well i don't want her to get used to it i want it to be like a a novelty when we get on the plane so then it'll occupy her for five hours what if she hates it like you haven't showed her the ipad at all like what if she's seen it she's very very interested in it and i want to maintain that interest at a peak level until voila i unveil on the plane at six o'clock tomorrow morning I've downloaded a bunch of videos and bullshit for you to watch. You clever. Dad of the year. Clever motherfucker. Yes, dad of the year. Put your kid in front of a screen. Uh, press play. Put your feet up. Have That's a couple right. of cocktails. Father you, of the year. You can just have that trophy waiting for me when I get back. What, awesome. uh, what part of Florida are we talking about here? I don't know, man. I don't know Florida. I've never been there uh, to where my parents are. It's somewhere, I don't know, flying into Tampa, and I assume they will pick me up at the airport and drive me and my family to wherever their house is. So Gulf, Gulf Coast. Yes, Gulf Coast. See, because my, my wife's parents live, live there as well. That's in, apparently uh, that's what people do. Right outside of Tampa. They retire fact. to Florida and then make people come and see them. Well, Ben, we got a lot of thank yous to, to give out this week. A lot of people did some nice stuff for us last week when we celebrated our 100th episode. Uh, first and foremost, CME listener Eric Aragon sent us this awesome lighted logo uh, thing. That is a handsome, handsome lighted logo thing. I put a picture of it on Twitter today. It's currently sitting on the uh, on the table between us. It's like we're doing an actual podcast. Yeah. Here makes me feel like, like we're on WKRP in Cincinnati. Or are you going to like put this like up in like your bedroom window at night so that the neighborhood knows what's up? That kind yes, of thing? yes, yeah. So people will see the beer signs in other people's windows, and then they'll see this in, in my window and know that I'm a classy motherfucker. Yeah, classy motherfucker lives there. We also got a nice gift from Claire Hammond. Uh, we had Amy Sewin send us some, uh, some homemade candies, some uh, uh, almond butter cups that we enjoyed during the UFC 172 broadcast. Uh, we had Christian Orestal, just ballparking that. Nailed it. He sent us some Turkish pepper candies from uh, from Sweden. And uh, also our guy Seth Pickett uh, sent us some of his homebrewed beers, which we haven't dipped into yet because it is Monday at noon right, <laughs> right. now. So but we, I'm on vacation, man. You sh- yeah, you, could, you should pop that bad boy open. Uh, so, yeah, thanks to everyone who did that. You know, the other thing I like about Seth Pickett is he is not afraid to spread the word about the podcast on Twitter. Yeah, that's I always true. see him trying to interest his friends and and uh, and acquaintances on Twitter and the podcast. Maybe what we need is kind of a we need to think long term here. 
help him get a lot more friends so that then he can spread the word to a lot more people uh, because, you know, I think that's the way. We've been going at it too narrowly, just trying to tell people directly about our podcast. Right. We should make him a more popular individual worldwide. You are really, you've gotten into some heavy strategery yeah. this week. Uh, it ain't checkers, motherfucker, it's chess. Thanks also to everybody who signed up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter this past week. Uh, we sent out our first installment of that on Friday, and then on Saturday night we dropped a, an audio extra for Breakfast of Champions subscribers after the UFC 172 uh, show, just as a little something, something. something we might start doing for uh, for special uh, Breakfast of Champion members, sending the little audio uh uh, five minute long, you know, our instant reactions after yeah. big fights when you Just and I are in, this, in the same location. Yeah, moose bouche. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Uh, also, Ben, tomorrow, which will be Tuesday, uh, we're going to put up the the second, I guess, semi annual White Elephant essay contest. Will begin tomorrow. So exciting. That's very exciting. Anybody who's interested in that should go over and check out the uh, the rules on Tuesday at comainevent.com. Ben, this week we've got some listener music come to us from Tomas Simon and his band The Old Faithful. They are a hard rock outfit from Valencia, Spain. Oh, nice. So an international feel here. Uh, if you like what you hear from them, you can find them at theoldfaithful.bandcamp.com. And as always, we'll put a link to that on the website once we get this uh, episode posted. What do you think about you and me maybe starting a rival band uh, called The New Old Faithful? And we just really take the wind out of their sails. I'm into it, man. Let's do it. Nice. God knows we got a lot of spare time on our hands, not <laughs> enough right. side projects going on. Well, so first I will learn an instrument. Yes. So let me know when that happens. Three rounds as usual this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Glover Tashira may have been the biggest challenge to John Jones thus far in his career, but to John Jones's elbows, eh, wasn't really that big of a deal. And in round number two, you know what really sucks is when Dana White says it seems like you don't really want it, and then you go out in your big fight at UFC 172 and you kind of make it look like he was right all along. And in round number three, hey, yo, did you guys see Chris Cyborg at the MMA Awards? She looked like Vandalay Silva in a dress. Hey, oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week at the beautiful Catskills Lodge in Schenectady, New York. Don't forget to tip your bartenders. Try the prime rib. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But wow. first. Wow. What? That was impressive. Oh, well, you know, I do my best. I didn't know you had I'm not a voices guy, but I do what I can. You lie. <laughs> Uh, right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Simon Whittem, or what, Whitham. Whittem? Whittem. Whittem. Say Whittem. He writes, so I see the UFC are rewriting. This guy must be from the UK. So with them, perhaps then? I don't know. I'm just, I'm using this. I'm inferring that he's from the US, from the UK because he said the UFC are rewriting history. Like it's a plural thing because that's what they do with their sports teams over there. Is that what they do? Yeah, I'll take your word for it. Chelsea are facing Manchester United this weekend. Wow, you sound like you're really up on that. Yeah, no, yeah, I know everything about it. So I see the UFC are rewriting history again by omitting Tito Ortiz from their list of fighters with the most wins in light heavyweight history. Why they do that? Uh, Now I know that you you had the heads up on this. You saw that the UFC had put a graphic up on the screen at UFC 172. Yeah, there's a little graphic talking about uh, where John Jones stands and in relation to some of the greats. It lists John Jones with 14 wins. Uh, in the light heavyweight division, uh, 
Again, in, in the UFC's light heavyweight division, Chuck Liddell with 13, Rashad Evans also with 13, Leota Machida with 11, and then Forrest Griffin and Matt Hamill rounding out the bottom with 10. Okay, so that's the graphic. So they do they mention showed. Chuck Liddell. And how they many do. wins did they say he had? 13. 13. So that leads me to believe that they must have, uh, they must not have considered some of those early appearances to be in the UFC official light heavyweight division because. You and I just counted up, and I think we got Chuck Liddell has 16 Six, UFC yeah. wins. So yeah, the and first I mean, three must have been some of those in the are, olden times. Yeah, they're, they're, some of those could be tough to tell because, you know, the the divisions were a little bit wacky there in the beginning when everybody was trying to sort that out. I mean, that's one possible explanation is that they just didn't consider some of those early wins. Uh, I guess it's also possible that uh, there's some, some skullduggery at work because, as you see, Tito Ortiz, not listed anywhere here. Uh, and he had a bunch of wins in the light heavyweight division. We counted them up, but I forget what we got at now. Yeah, well, I think we got to 15, didn't we? Well, here, I got it open. We can do it again. We, the, he beat Vanderlei Silva for the vacant UFC light heavyweight championship in uh, April 14th of the year 2000. So you would got to think that that one would count, right? Right. Uh, so let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, and that's Ken Shamrock in October 10th, 2006. What did I say, 11? Yes. So 12, Ryan Bader then at UFC 132. So that would put him on that list at, le at least, right? Yeah, definitely on the list ahead of Forrest Griffin, Matt Hamill, and Machida. So uh, it does seem like, and this is one of the things where, um, you know, you hate to see, like it's one thing where the UFC does it with its, its, its Hall of Fame, you know, we talked about that before, and it's like, okay, it's your company Hall of Fame. You can put whoever you want in there, I guess. You can keep people out over petty grudges. Whatever. It's your thing. You get to do whatever. Um, but, yeah, when you just kind of try and rewrite your own history to ignore guys that you don't like anymore, that's when I think uh, MMA fans just in general should start to feel a little bit gross about what you're doing because – we do expect you, as we've talked before, to be kind of a steward of this sport. Uh, you're kind of in that position whether you like it or not. So, man, don't just lie about stuff. Yeah, I suppose your best case scenario is he here is that you just screwed up and forgot, Tito Ortiz. <laughs> well, just slipped their minds. Which, yeah, that would be a pretty, uh, uh, you know... Uh, questionable explanation since you went ahead and made a graphic and put it on the pay-per-view broadcast. You'd think that someone at some point would have done a little either fact-checking or that someone just passing by would have stuck their heads in the in the, in the the graphic bay and would have been like, uh, what about Tito Ortiz? Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, if, if Barry Sanders had gone and played uh, in the Canadian Football League or something, then we just acted like he never was never around in the NFL. You think he would have paid for records. the Winnipeg Blue Bombers? He seems like a Winnipeg guy. Or yeah, a, uh, rough, rough riders. I mean, Toronto. Winnipeg is the Detroit of Canada, right? Is so that true? I'm, I'm saying it is right now with my mouth. So you know, it must we be have true. a lot of loyal listeners up there in the peg. So I assume I've mean, been to the peg, man. And let me tell you, if it's not the Detroit of Canada, then I don't want to go to wherever is the Detroit of Canada. I'm so just going to assume Winnipeg. that you mean that that's the home of soul music in Canada. <laughs> the second question this week comes from Pedro Sierro. What do you think about that pronunciation? Do you think that was close? Well, it was confident. I will yeah. say that. Because it's either Sierro or uh, Cairo, maybe? Let's say Sierro. Sierro. He writes, is Charlie Brenneman in the UFC because he is guaranteed to deliver a knockout? Ouch. Ouch. You know, you do have to feel kind of bad 
for Charlie Brenneman at this point, though, because he is a guy, he's been in a couple of different weight classes, he's tried a bunch of different stuff, uh, when he gets knocked out, his hair flops around in like a cartoonish, it looks like he was basically forged for the express purpose of getting knocked out when it happens. You but know, the thing that makes me feel bad for him, though, is that he's a dude who is clearly too good to be on the independent circuit, like... When he first signed in the UFC back in 2010, he came in with a record of 11 and 1 and then has kind of And a, the one was to John Howard, who's back yeah, in the UFC lo- now. Yeah, he lost to John Howard uh, way back in 2008. Then he gets signed to the UFC as a very up and down uh time, gets cut in 2012, and then he goes out and puts together four straight wins again on the independent circuit, comes works his way back to the UFC and immediately gets uh, two straight losses, one by rear naked choke a minute and 45 seconds um, with a minute and 45 seconds into the first round and then uh, gets knocked out by Danny Castillo in round number two this past weekend at UFC 172. So you got to think maybe he's going to get cut again. And it just seems like kind of a tough road for Charlie Brenneman because he's cleaning everybody's clocks down there at the smaller shows. Yeah, obviously, you know, good athlete. And, you know, the uh, the the submission loss to, to Neil Dariush, that was another one where he got dropped. And I think even Dariush made a comment in his post-fight interview like, yeah, I saw that I kind of rocked him with a punch, but you got to be careful with that guy because it, because of his hair, it looks worse than it often really is because his hair is flying around when you're hitting him. So it might look like the dude is super rocked and he was really careful about not trying to rush in and finish with strikes and trying to lock up a submission instead. He even mentioned that. And even when like he mentioned it and people, there was kind of a, a giggle in the audience and he was like, no, I'm not disrespecting him. I'm saying like the hair really makes it look worse than it is. Here was one where the moment that punch landed, he was asleep. Yeah. Uh, and we got a, a great photo of it actually. On the, you can see on the MMA Junkie uh, Instagram, official MMA Junkie, uh, where it's like him in mid-fall with his arms up in the air like he's praising Jesus and his hair flying back. And you're just like, man, that is a, a one-punch knockout right there where the dude is already having uh, – psychedelic dreams before his body even hits the floor yeah it, it was like in uh, mike tyson's punch out when little mac gets knocked out yeah. and it makes that sound woo, woo, woo. that's <laughs> yeah. that's what it looked like it was ugly ugly uh display for, for charlie brenneman who you got to feel bad for at this point uh the next question this week come wait a second official mma junkie instagram account yeah it's pretty sweet so I'm just going to go all up on there and just all kinds of homophobic comments. <laughs> well, and then when, you know, people actually get mad at you about it, you were hacked, also lost your phone. Mm-hmm. Also, you were hiring maybe a social media company that is the worst social media company in the world because they did that to yep. you. Just some guys I met on the street that just said they could help me out with my social media. And, and coincidentally, I also lost my phone the same day that they did that. A lot of coincidences. Yeah, an awful lot of coincidences. Second question, our next question comes from Brandon Burton this week. He writes, is Luke Rockhold going to run wild all the way to the title? Or do you guys see anyone who might rustle his hair? Now, see, that's a good email right there. That is. Direct to the point. Succinct. succinct, Yes. uh, And yet, you know, multifaceted. A lot of layers. It it asks a real question about what the ceiling might be for Luke Rockhold. uh, Makes reference to the fact that... uh, He's a, a handsome, pretty boy, which you just can't ignore. If we're talking about Luke Rockhold, it would be like ignoring how well-groomed Anthony Pettis is, which I know Chad is never about to do. He's got a guy for that. Yeah. Uh, and Luke Rockhold, I think, maybe this is one of those fights where people start to see it, start to see a little something else from him and his game. 
that dude is a really good fighter. You talk to all those guys at AKA, and they keep telling you that people don't realize it yet how good Luke Rockhold is. Maybe they saw that one knockout of Vitor Belfort and, and judged him too harshly, but he was good in strike force, and you've seen some of those dudes. Like, you know, he beat Tim Kennedy, who's doing pretty well in the UFC now, uh, and goes out there and kind of runs all over your guy, Tim Boach, uh, submit, submits him with like two different submissions at, at the same time. I mean, Sure, maybe he has some trouble against a guy like Chris Weidman, and shit, who doesn't? But I see Luke Rockhold as a contender, a serious contender in that division. Yeah, well, he came in as a, I think, 7-1 to one favorite in yeah, this fight. Yeah, crazy. So in a lot of ways, it was pretty much him just holding serve. But at the same time, a sad night for the Barbarian Horde because he comes out and just blows the doors off Tim Boach yeah. in a way that uh, really reinforces to you, like you said, how good Luke Rockhold is uh, and and kind of begins to add more evidence to the idea that when he's allowed to fight normal humans who aren't jacked out of their minds on, on synthetic testosterone, uh, he does pretty well. Yeah. Because, you know, Tim Boach, while not being uh, – a guy who's knocking on the door for a title shot or anything like that. He's now just one in three in his last four UFC appearances. He's also a dude that you don't just run through. You know no. what I mean? Like, I don't know that he's ever even lost in the first round before. Uh, and, and this was one where, where Luke Rockhold pretty much came out, uh, uh, you know, was able to, to put him in that weird inverted triangle position, uh, in a really, quick and impressive fashion uh and from there like just pretty much it, it was over like that was the end pretty much everything else was academic after that so it, w- it was a performance that that makes you think that luke rockhold is probably a guy uh who's going to make some noise in the middleweight division now since that the only loss of his career was that that crazy spinning kick to Vitor Belfort and even prior to that he beat some good dudes like he beat tim kennedy he beat he has, he has one earlier loss like in the small circuit. Like oh, yeah. It's like his second fight. Yeah. He lost to Tony Rubalcava via TKO at something called Mott M, November 6, 2007. There you go. So right were now, you, were you, Tony Rubalcava is sitting in a bar somewhere telling that story to any goddamn person <laughs> that'll listen. <laughs> You're not the Tony Rubalcava. Uh, were you pretty sad? Uh, I know you were all set to hoard up uh, when uh, Tim Bosch came on and then... I mean, is this the end? Is this the end for the Horde? Well, did, did web traffic dip on BarbarianHorde.net? We had to shut down BarbarianHorde.net. It would be a very black moment for us had we not already located our next guy, you know, Yoel Romero. That's right. now streaking through the middleweight division. So now uh, BarbarianHorde.net just has a bunch of banner ads for SoldierOfGod.tv. <laughs> yes. You know, we've been called Fairweather fans, but <laughs> we ain't trying to hear that. Uh, last question this week uh, coincidentally comes from Seth Pickett. He writes, now that Andre Arlovsky is back in the UFC, can we finally talk about the fact that he KO'd big country Roy Nelson? Many have tried to do so, but very few have finished Roy, and yet no one talks about this. We have seen many heavyweights wail on big country, and he stayed standing, and yet here is the only man to do so, and no one seems to talk about it. Time for a rematch? Discuss. Well, yeah, this, you know, this was some of that breaking news that happens uh, in between podcasts. And uh, so Andre Arlovsky back in the UFC and already slated for a fight against Brendan Schaub, right? Right. You know, and that is true, though, that people forget about that fight. And I was just having a conversation with somebody just the other day. I think maybe like somebody at jujitsu was talking about Roy Nelson and how, you know, hey, you know, he gets beat up and stuff, but he never gets knocked out. And I was saying, actually, he did get knocked out that one time by Andre Arlovsky. And if you remember that one, uh, it was after it was an Elite XC at Elite XC Heat. 
the the famous Elite XC heat in, in Sunrise, Florida, where that was supposed to be Kimbo versus Shamrock, and then Seth Petrozelli came in there and knocked out Kimbo and basically destroyed Elite XC. Well, so you could understand how no one will remember Andre Arlovsky's win right. from that particular well, event. Well, one of the weird things about it was I believe Roy Nelson got stood up out of side control in uh, against Andre Arlovsky. If it was, wow, I'm was pretty it, sure it was side control. Was it Kevin Mulhall was the referee? Because I, I wouldn't I, be surprised <laughs> after what we saw this past weekend. Uh, I think I think he was inside control and maybe like trying to work like a, a far side Kimura or something like that and uh, just kind of taking his time about it and got stood up and then Arlovsky knocks him out. Uh, that's really what I remember about that one. But it is true. You know, what I thought was really interesting was when afterwards, I don't know if you saw the post-fight, uh, post-press conference scrum where people are asking Dana White about bringing back Arlovsky and his answer was basically just like, I like him. I like Arlovsky. So I brought him back. It's like... Okay, I guess we're not going to try and justify it any more than that. The same kind of thing. Like, this is the thing that should make people feel a little weird, though. When you're like, oh, Ben Askren, no, he doesn't get here. I don't like him. Don't like the Holly Holm. Don't like her manager. Don't like, don't like the way they do business. Arlovsky, we just like him. Who cares? Who cares if he's at this level right now? Bring him back. We like yeah, the guy. Yeah, well, he, he does have two wins in a row, but previous to that, he lost to uh, current light heavyweight contender Anthony Johnson and it, it you know and there was that that time you know back 2009 to to 2011 or 2012 where he lost like four straight fights in a row uh where you know it was it, a lot of people started wondering how long Andre Arlovsky was going to do this uh but and he, that was the last time he was really fighting like you know name opponents it, yeah so it does seem like kind of a weird personnel decision uh, to, to bring him back and kind of dovetails a little bit with what we were talking about last week when we asked where are all the good heavyweight prospects, young heavyweight prospects. Yeah, where are the young ass heavyweights? Uh, because Enter a 35 year old on Right, because he fits right in that, uh, average age of the UFC heavyweight top 10, which last I looked was, uh, just a little bit over 34 years old. Obviously, Arlovsky is 35, so this doesn't solve the, uh, for the, the UFC's heavyweight age problem of where the hell are we gonna be in five years when Andre Arlovsky is 40 and Cain Velasquez is 36? Yeah, does not help us there at all. Uh, well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast, or if you want to submit something to us for our use in uh, uh, Breakfast of Champions, if you want to do an unverified listener mail rant, perhaps a uh, graph, anything like that, put together a nice graph or a Photoshop, you know how to do that. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. If you need to do an attachment, I guess you can just email us at comaineventpodcast at gmail.com. All one word. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, we heard a lot before the fight about what kind of test for John Jones Glover Tashiro was going to be. And, uh, I guess you got to give him credit for, for hanging in there for the full 25 minutes. Uh, but as it turned out, it 
didn't really play out the way that the pre-fight hype promised us that it might. Uh, Glover Tashira didn't really seem to be like he was, uh, that, uh, difficult, I guess you could say, a, a problem for John Jones to solve. Uh, and really, I thought it turned out to be kind of a showcase fight for John Jones because he went out there and pretty much emptied the toolbox through every single thing that he had at Glover Tashira and a few things that we've never seen before, including a weird, uh, arm crank from the clinch position that, that Tashira said after the fight might have uh, dislocated or hurt his shoulder in the first round. Um, what did you think about John Jones's performance here? Did you think that it was uh, impressive, or did you think that it lacked a little bit of sizzle since he didn't actually end up finishing Tashira at any point? You know, I, I don't see how you can say that that performance is not impressive. And you're right that he didn't finish him and didn't look like he ever really put his foot all the way down on the gas to try to finish him. There was a moment in one of the later rounds where he had him up against the fence and he kind of piled up a few strikes in a row. And it kind of seemed as if he was doing it to, to wait and see what it would do to, to, to Glover. To see, you know, pop his head back a few times, see if it, he starts to do the stanky leg and see if you can spot a finish in there. Uh, and when that didn't happen, he kind of backed off a little bit and then was content to just keep beating the shit out of him, uh, you know, in the casual fashion that he had been employing all throughout the fight. I mean, it's still an awesome fight. He took several of those right hands uh, from Teixeira and proved that he has no problem taking those. Uh, seemed perhaps even a little too eager to prove that he could take him at times, uh, but did a similar thing to what he did against Chil Sonnen in that he seemed to want to go and do what that guy is supposed to be good at doing. Like, okay, right. you are the guy who fights in close, uh, does well out of the clinch, kind of up against the fence like that, where you can throw those short, heavy shots. Fine, let's do that, and I can beat you there. Uh, and he did it. I mean, I, he he absolutely demolished Clover. Yeah, and you know we've seen him do that a couple of times before. He did it against Chael Sonnen, like you thought, or like you said, and uh, did it to Rampage Jackson during their fight, where uh, pretty much uh, engaged Rampage Jackson in a boxing match. Uh, ended up ended up stopping him late, and then got on the mic and was like, "Yeah, I did it on purpose. I wanted to prove I was a better boxer than he was." Uh, so it's something that we've seen from from John Jones in the past, and it's frankly sort of a dangerous game for him to play uh, because you know while he did obliterate Glover Teixeira and. Uh, you know, cut him, busted him wide open with, with some elbows and, uh, threw every strike that he had at him, including weird axe kicks and whatnot. Uh, but like a goddamn taekwondo tournament also had some, uh, some moments when he had him in the clinch up against the cage and, and Deshira stuck him with some hard uppercuts that, that notch Jones, uh, popped his head up at least, uh, you know, made you wonder. Uh, but, uh, Jones certainly seemed to weather it. I guess if you had any lingering questions about his chin, maybe those were answered. Uh, but at the same time, like that's the kind of thing that at some point you could see totally backfiring on a guy. Right. But like, also, the kind I don't of know if you decide to drop your hands and wiggle your chin out there in front of a, a contender. Cause you think you can't be beat. You might get knocked out. Yeah. But it's also the kind of thing that makes those kinds of fights, uh, interesting for fans. I mean, that if, if you can't finish the guy, but at least you're going out there and you're, you're forcing the action, you're making a fight out of it. And you could see that he had Teixeira pretty much mentally broken. I mean, by the time, uh, Teixeira goes back to his corner after the fourth round, he's apologizing to his coaches. There's still another round, you know, like, and he's saying, like, I'm sorry, basically, like, I'm sorry for, for letting you guys down. And they're telling him not to apologize. I mean, that's how you know that. You've just pretty much demolished that guy, uh, made him question everything he thought he was going to do in that fight, uh, and the fight's not even over yet. I mean, that kind of stuff is impressive, and it's the kind of stuff where you, when you see all the different things that John Jones has that he can use against you, it really drives home like how 
how much more of a complete fighter he is than so many of the guys in the light heavyweight division, especially a guy like Teixeira, who uh, when you see him, especially in the cage with a guy like Jones, you realize how limited that guy is and how John Jones just has so many threats that he can pull out at any one time. You know, you just have so much to worry about if you're getting ready for a fight with that dude. Yeah, and, you know, uh, uh, we both read the uh, st- uh, stylistic, I guess, kind of like takedown of Glover Teixeira previous uh, to the fight by by Jack Slack, which was a great piece just kind of about how one-dimensional Glover Teixeira had been in all of his previous UFC appearances. Would you call it a hit piece? Uh, hit piece on Glover Teixeira? <laughs> yeah, hit piece. Uh, and it was kind of like, you know, we don't know for sure that he can't do any other things, but he sort of leads with this cross-counter right hand almost all the time and then uh, occasionally follows it up with this left hook. Uh, and when, when we actually got to the fight, we did see him wing that kind of Chuck Liddell-style overhand right a lot of the time, but uh, also didn't look quite as one-dimensional, I think, maybe as as I had feared that he would or, you know, expected that he would. Is it Was this a case for you where uh, Glover Tashira actually looked a lot better than you thought that he would or a little bit better anyway? Because, uh, you know, he certainly connected on a few shots and there were there were a couple times where he tagged John Jones where it looked like Jones had to stop for a minute and be like, whoa, OK, well, this guy yeah. does, in fact, hit pretty hard. Yeah, he was uh, better than I expected and had, you know, a little bit more to throw out there than I thought he would. And tough. Just a, a tough, tough guy to be able to to take all that and still make it the full distance. I mean, so I think he did. And part of it is because for people like us who never really bought the whole Glover Teixeira is the greatest test of John Jones's uh, legacy kind yeah, of thing. Not when they're using quotes about Alexander Gustafson to try yeah, to sell me the fight. Yeah, we never bought that to begin with. So, it, like... If you had bought that, I could see how you might be disappointed with uh, his showing in that fight. But for those of us who thought, you know, hey, this is this is not the fight that John Jones really has to worry about that much, uh, then I think that it was kind of a pleasant surprise how well he managed to do in that fight. At the same time, though, it's, it has that thing where it tells you how dominant John Jones has been as champion when... You know, he has a, a close fight with, with Alexander Gustafson, and it's considered like the crowning moment in Gustafson's career that he kept it really, really close with John Jones. And then a guy like Teixeira, who manages to make it the distance and take an ass whipping and give at least a little bit back, and we're impressed with him. You know, it tells you how high the bar is set in terms of our expectations for John Jones and, and what he has to do now to actually impress us. Yeah, and pre-fight, uh, the UFC kept making this connection between Glover Tashir and Chuck Liddell, uh, because Tashir obviously trains at the pit with John Hackleman down in California and is considered one of Chuck Liddell's, uh, uh, prize pupils or, or, uh, you know, the, the heir apparent, I guess, to maybe his style of fighting. Uh, and obviously Chuck Liddell was on hand at UFC 172 and did a Q and A where he said some kind of ridiculous things about how he thought that the Iceman would knock out, uh, John Jones in his prime, which, uh, uh, just isn't true, frankly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that your point is well taken that this was a fight where John Jones showed a lot of the different things that he can do and how well-rounded he is uh, and that you're not going to beat him with this, uh, you know, 2005 style performance where you're just out there throwing knockout punches. And that's that's pretty much all you're doing. Uh, and so I think it's a testament to the fact that th- that division and that sport has, has evolved at this point to the point where uh, if you're going to give John Jones any kind of fight at all, you better, uh, you know, come out with a well-rounded game plan and uh, not just be a guy who can do one thing. You're going to have to be really good at a lot of different stuff. And so far, obviously, we haven't seen anybody who's been uh, even close to being able to do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, we also though, saw that John Jones has a little Dundasso in his game. 
Yeah, I was actually just going to make the transition. It turned out the dude who had the more Chocladell-style skill set going out there and trying to poke every damn buddy in the eye uh, was John Jones as he uh, went to this kind of strange tactic that we've seen him employ in the past where uh, he just kind of sticks his open hand out there as uh, kind of a stiff arm if you will, because he's got such a reach advantage on everybody. Uh, you, you, like he kind of big brothers you. He puts his yeah. hand on your forehead and then you're just the little tiny tyke swinging wild haymakers underneath it and missing by a foot. Uh, because it's John Jones, I think we've, we've had to deal with a certain amount of controversy post fight. Uh, what did you think of that? Is, is there anything in that, 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 uh, that John Jones is cheating, et cetera, et cetera? Well, there were, it seemed like he adjusted that, uh, later in the fight after he got warned about the eye pokes, because at first it seemed like he was kind of putting that, that palm out, like right in the center of the dude's face to where like your fingers are right there in his eyes and he's moving around and, you know, you could see how you could accidentally poke a guy like that. And then after he got warned for it, you could see him. It seemed like he adjusted it and kind of moved it up higher up on, on Teixeira's forehead, kind of the crown of his head. And it's an effective like technique. If you have the reach of a guy like John Jones does where, you know, if you're reaching out and you are still touching the guy's head, he can't hit you. He, he just can't get close enough to hit you as long as you have that contact on him. And it also, it forces him to do something because he doesn't want to stand there with your hand on his head, like, you know, a comic strip bully. Like he has to do something. He has to try and get that hand off there or try and come under it, try and get away from it. And it, creates the situation where you can do something and then wait for him to react and you know you have the the upper hand waiting to to attack him from that and it also you know just kind of constricts his vision so you can come over and, and hit him with something not too different from what we saw him do to Rashad Evans where he would put that hand out there just kind of inviting Rashad Evans to put his hand out there and he, we would do it over and over again we would reach out and grab John Jones's hand and then that elbow would come over the top with the same arm uh, and that was the the most trouble Rashad Evans got into in that fight. That was when he seemed like he was the most hurt was by those kind of like sneaky little attacks. So, I mean, I think that's all good stuff. You shouldn't be poking the dude in the eye. But, you know, if we're not going to give Chuck Liddell shit for fighting with his pinkies out all the damn time, then we shouldn't give John Jones shit for that. Because, you know, they tell him stop poking the dude in the eye. He stops. Let's move on. Right. And it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Uh, and you would think like if he wants to do that and it doesn't want it to be controversial, just close your hand. Like, cause it seemed like you could do the same thing with a closed fist. Just kind of put it out there to, to keep the, keep your opponent at bay. It strikes me though, is it's just, it's just the kind of thing of, of where it's the, it's a tangible thing that people can, uh, kind of credit or, or like a, people can offer it up as an, as a evidence of why they don't like John Jones. Like, like, or the same thing like what people would do with his kicks to the, the kneecap, uh, standing where people would say, Oh, you know, like that's a, a dirty move. And I even see people talking about it with that little, uh, you know, shoulder crank that he does out of the clinch where people are like, Oh, Hey, you know, that's a dirty move because it's a, a joint hyperextension and there's no opportunity for the guy to tap. Like, okay, fine. This is a professional fight though. Like that's a perfectly legal technique. I think it's awesome to see guys taking stuff like that, that, you know, you might find in some old karate book, uh, and making it work, actually using it in a fight. And, you know, that is the kind of thing that, you know, Glover Teixeira did not go in there thinking like, well, I got to watch out for uh, when I try and get the underhooks in the clinch. He's going to try and do some weird kind of shoulder crank. And then when he does it and it actually hurts you, 
it makes you then the, the whole rest of the fight when John Jones is trying to force the action in the clinch, it's like you don't even want to go and get that underhook, normally a position you want to get from there. Because shit, he might do that thing to you again, and that really hurt. Yeah, and that was like some genius level John Jones new stuff that will hurt you type shit as far as I was concerned. The eye poke thing, I'm not, I'm not troubled by it except to say that I feel like, uh, it almost seems like he's better than that in a, in a weird way. Like it's an effective technique to try to keep your opponent away from you, but at the same time, like, man, you're whipping his ass anyway. Like it just seems like, uh, uh, you know, to, to put your open hand out there with an attitude of like, almost like, uh, uh, the, the Russian from, from, uh, Rocky Four. Uh, Ivan Drago. Yeah, Ivan Drago. If he dies, he dies. It was sort of like a, well, you know, if he gets poked in the eye, that's not the worst yeah, thing that could happen. Just, you know, like you do, like, uh, with your brother or something where I'm just going to swing my arms here in the living room. And if you happen to get in here and get hit, that's your fault. But you know, he got warned about it. Then he went and he found his waterfall. Uh, and there was, was putting no, on a beautiful artistic fight. It was a thing of beauty to watch. Found that waterfall and everything was fine. Uh, well, now, you know, John Jones, he kind of sprints out of this one as long as, he, you know, he didn't suffer another injury. And uh, we, we, we've we pretty much got what we think will be the rest of his year kind of planned out. We think he's going to rematch with Alexander Gustafson probably this summer, late summer maybe. And then near the end of the year, he'll have a fight with uh, the winner of the Dan Henderson, Daniel Cormier title eliminator from UFC 173. Uh, all of this barring injury or unforeseen calamity, which is always kind of a big if in today's UFC. But uh, it struck me after the fight when I was thinking about this and thinking about the, uh, the just unbelievable year that John Jones put together in 2011 where he went 4 and 0 and ended up beating uh Shogun Hua for the for the UFC light heavyweight championship and then beat Quentin Jackson and Lyoto Machida uh all during 2011 and and uh you know when you when you think about it in the way that he he was well on his way to beating five consecutive former light heavyweight champions at that point uh, it's one of the best years an MMA fighter has ever had, as far as I'm concerned, just because of how dominant he looked and how he, he won the championship, et cetera, et cetera. If he manages to run this gauntlet that will be Glover Tashira, uh, Alexander Gustafson, probably Daniel Cormier, and he, a man, he manages to emerge unscathed and still the champion at that point, uh, it kind of seems like his 2014 could be almost as awesome. Yeah, I think so. Especially, I mean, and it's getting to the point, too, where uh, it seems clearer to me that if you're still hating on John Jones, the fighter, and trying to, you know, poke holes in, in his uh, resume and say, oh, you know, he's overrated or he's not that good, uh, then you're kind of just being an asshole because you don't like him. Uh, you know, it's fine to say, like, per, like his personality or, like, you know, him allegedly getting on Instagram and, you know, shouting out homophobia stuff, like fine that's those are all valid reasons not to like him as a person that's fine uh but you gotta admit that that dude is an awesome fighter and after some performances like this if you're not willing to admit that uh then you're just kind of showing yourself to be a dick yeah and i feel like you're missing out honestly yes. like if there's people out there i saw there was one dude that i saw on twitter i don't remember who, what his name was but he was going back and forth with jeremy botter uh another bleacher report writer and he was i don't know if he was just like being serious or just trolling but he was he was the kids call that trolling trying yeah. to make the point that john jones had lost to glover Tashira, and i didn't understand where he was getting at and then i saw we got a ton of email about the the eye poke deal and that's been a big uh, topic of conversation the past couple of weeks. And I just feel like 
like if that's all that you're able to take away from this fight and you're the dude on the internet like trying to make the ridiculous case that somehow John Jones lost to Glover Tashira like why are you watching this sport man this is the one of the best guys we've ever seen do this a guy that by the time he's all said and done dude's only 26 goddamn years old he could do this for another 10 years if he wants to uh even though I don't think he will but like by the time it's all said and done he could be the greatest fighter of all time and you're going to sit there while he's doing it while he's putting together this amazing career and be like oh he's a cheater pokes people in the eye feel like he lost to Glover Tashira yeah I sucks. Don't, what do you get out of that uh, like I, I don't understand I, I agree that you're missing out because I mean watching that fight was one of those where you realize okay because going into it I don't think we were expecting that much really expecting to enjoy it as much as we did just because we didn't think you know, Teixeira was the fight we wanted to see. I think a lot of us felt like, you know, a rematch with Gustafson or something like we're looking ahead to a potential Cormier fight. That kind of stuff just seems like more attractive. And then he goes out there and he really just puts on a show of martial arts and shows you what this sport can be if you have the right kind of person doing it. And it's really impressive to watch and to have somebody, yeah, come away from that and just want to try and find some kind of way to criticize the guy. Yeah. You probably shouldn't bother with this sport anymore because it's maybe not for you. Yeah. You know what I feel like he needs, honestly? Like an Ed Soros type individual to uh, translate for him. Because let's be <laughs> honest, John Jones does come off as like a little bit tone deaf sometimes. And is not. He's a terrible advocate for himself. He's not great with the media. I feel like he needs to get into an Anderson Silva type situation where like he, he doesn't speak the language. And, uh, at least to, to English speaking fans, like, we have no idea what he's saying. We're, we're just getting a secondhand version from his manager. Could yeah. be anything. Could be saying anything. Because at this point, people, you know, they, they pile on Jones and they're like, oh, I just don't like him. I, you know, for whatever various reasons, they don't like him. And at the same time, it's like the guy that he may unseat as the greatest mixed martial artist of all time is a guy that we honestly don't know that much about. And I always feel like, man, do you really feel like if you got to hang out with Anderson Silva for a long time that you would come away thinking he was an awesome dude? Like, I doubt it. Like, he's probably just as weird as John Jones, but you have no idea because you don't know what he's saying. Well, yeah, well, and it's this thing where people do this with athletes, and I think they do it more with fighters because it's this individual sport, and we have this concept of you're going to go in there and we're going to learn some truth. Like, the the cage is this, this place where all that stuff gets stripped away. And so you think that you want the good fighters to also be, in your view, awesome people, like it's some kind of morality test, and it's not. Uh, and, you know, I can see why people take issue with a lot of things that John Jones does. For a guy who is so image conscious, I mean, he seems to think that he, his image is a thing that he can just kind of tweak and mold into what he wants it to be, even if he is constantly undermining it himself with other things that he says or does or, you know, allows his Instagram to be used to say or do. Uh, that kind of stuff, I can see how, like, you know, you, you come to a conclusion about him and then, you know, it colors your view of the fight. But you got to realize at this point, especially if he does go on to have the kind of year that we're talking about, you know, if he beats Gustafson and beats him convincingly in a, in a rematch and then beats Daniel Cormier, you can't touch that guy. All right, well, that's probably going to do it for round number one. Uh, we went on a little bit longer than we thought we would, so you know what? Well, let's bump Are You Fucking Kidding Me to the end of round number two. Okay. Just to make sure people keep listening, because right. you know that's what they're waiting for. Yeah. As for right now, though, we're going to wrap this one up, and round number two starts right now.
Chad, I'm sitting here right now. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for UFC 172, and in the co-main event, it lists the result as Anthony Johnson defeats Phil Davis. Method broke him like a sugar cookie. Yeah. In parentheses, unanimous. Ooh, yeah. Now, you know that it's going to go badly for you when you talk a bunch of shit before the fight and then you don't win. And this is one where it seems like it gets you from all sides because Phil Davis talked a bunch of shit about John Jones, and who he was not fighting. He did it in an effort to prove to Dana White, apparently, that he wanted to be the champion. Then he goes out there, he gets just dominated by Anthony Johnson, and now you've got two guys who want to sit there and rub it in, and the boss is less impressed with you than when you started. So pretty much kind of a worst-case scenario for Anthony John- or for Phil Davis here? Yeah, he did himself no favors leading up to this fight, because I guess if you want to frame it this way, after the fight, it does actually totally look like he overlooked Anthony Johnson, and that is kind of a sports cliche that I feel like, 99 times out of 100 has no truth to it whatsoever because, you know, these guys spend so long uh, preparing for these fights that that unless you get into a John Jones type situation where you probably feel like you actually can't be defeated, like it would be pretty hard to totally just look past somebody, especially in a sport where you can get cut if you don't go out there and take care of your business. But Phil Davis certainly gave the impression leading up to this fight that he was not sweating Anthony Johnson. And the thing that he was focused on was proving that, yeah, he was going to go get that title. Uh, and then after Anthony Johnson does in fact break him like a sugar cookie, which I think was something Phil Davis said about John Jones. Yes. Right. Uh, that reflects poorly on things that were said previous to the physical altercation. Yes. Yes, it does. And it also, to me, it seems we Danny Downs and I talked about this a little bit on, on trading shots, but it seems like uh, it tells you a lot about the current state of the UFC and what the fighters think that they have to do. Because when Dana White comes out and says, I don't know about this guy. I don't know if he really wants to be champion. I think he might just be a little too happy being one of the top light heavyweights and uh, doesn't really have that that drive and that desire to go get it. And Phil Davis says, oh, okay, I'll, I'll show him. And then comes out with this kind of like really jokey, corny, like, you know, prefabricated material about John Jones kind of in the, in the Chael Sonnen fashion. Uh, and it doesn't go over super well. People just aren't really as into it when he's doing it. It tells you something that when he hears like the boss say, I don't know if this guy wants it. What he hears is I need to talk a bunch of corny ass shit about the champion and that will prove it somehow. Uh, whereas, you know, then he goes in there in the fight and really has nothing for Anthony Johnson. Can't take him down. Can't even really get close on the takedowns. Uh, doesn't seem like he's really even the same league on the feet. Anthony Johnson just looks great, uh, and has an answer for everything Phil Davis tries to do. Uh, it just puts you in such a, a, a bad light going forward if you're Phil Davis. Uh, and I mean, this, this broke him like a sugar cookie result here reminds you people aren't going to let that one go very easily. Yeah, and, and you're right, and it does put Phil Davis in a very, uh, unenviable position. Uh, and I think, if anything, is a reminder of the fact that he's very much still a work in progress. He's a guy who's only been fighting for a little bit over five years, not quite six years, and, uh, uh, a guy obviously who appears to have all of the physical tools and, uh, Maybe that's actually part of the reason why Dana White was a little bit harsh with him, saying that he didn't know if he, if he wanted it all of the way. Because if you look at Phil Davis and, and, you know, reflect on the, on the wrestling base that he comes from and, uh, how he looks getting off 
off the bus, I guess you would say, where he climbs up on the scale at the at the weigh-in looking like a damn alien uh, because he's so enormous. Like, he's a dude that looks like he would murder everyone. And then is, is a guy who goes out there in, in his last couple of uh, victorious appearances, kind of grinds out decisions uh, and, and, you know, doesn't necessarily look incredibly impressive uh with the submission game except for the one uh uh made up kimura thing that he did to tim boach years ago so and that's so i think that that's you know part of the problem is that he looks like he would be able to handle anybody and then he goes out there and looks uh really amateurish at, at times as he certainly did against anthony johnson and once we discovered that phil davis wasn't going to be able to take anthony johnson down i mean i think right at that point you knew this is going to be a long painful slog for yeah. Phil Davis because uh, certainly he didn't, didn't have the skills to, to really hang with Anthony Johnson on the feet. And I, in 2014, at the upper echelon of the light heavyweight division in the UFC, that's just not going to cut it. No, and it looks like that's the thing. Like, he just doesn't have enough to threaten people with because it's like, okay, he... he is a good enough striker at this point and, you know, quick enough that he can still sometimes hit you with something, throws out that, that Superman punch and he can land it a little bit, but he's not really a scary dude on the feet. He's not somebody that a guy like Anthony Johnson is really that worried about. And if you can't get the takedown, if you can't kind of force uh, the fight into a, a more favorable area for you, then what are you going to do? And you could kind of see it on his face, it seemed, when he went back to the corner after round one, uh, where he wasn't able to get a takedown, got got roughed up a little bit uh, by that ant, that right hand from Anthony Johnson. He kind of sat down there like, oh boy, two more rounds of this, huh? Yeah. You know that that kind of makes you wonder at this point how he's going to fix some of those holes to be one of those guys. And it, it also reminds you that the cruel nature of this sport and that Dana White kind of hit on unintentionally was that hey, if you're not here to be uh, the absolute best dude in the world at your weight class, then what are you here for? Right. And, you know, it's almost like a compliment to mixed martial arts in a way, because I feel like one of the things I took away from this fight is is just a, a reinforcement of the idea that of how hard this sport is and how there are so many different ways to lose. And like, there are so many different opportunities for you to have that one sort of, uh, hole in your armor where like, that's your, your flaw, man. Like that's your, uh, the flaw that will just unravel you almost every single time. And, and you know, you're reminded of a guy like Chael Sonnen, who his entire career has been able to take every single person that he's ever fought down, but always gets submitted from the bottom. And you're reminded of a dude like Brock Lesnar, who, uh, probably drove the bus that he looks good getting off and is just an unbelievable physical specimen and like maybe a once in a generation athlete to be 285 pounds and move around like a middleweight. But when uh, Shane Carwin hits him with an uppercut, he jumps back like a cat that somebody threw a bunch of cold water on. Like he just got to the sport too late, never really refined his striking, never really took the time to refine his striking and was a dude that just didn't like to get hit. Now you got a dude like Phil Davis, another guy who may in fact have all of the tools to be one of the best in the world, but at this point just doesn't have the all-around skill set to beat guys that he should probably beat. So Brock Lesnar's driving the bus because he's really big or because he's just into stuff like that? Yeah, I don't know. Because he's of, a blue-collar guy? Yes, that? exactly. That's what I was trying to okay. say. Okay, all Work right. ethic. Yeah. And he might do like a tune-up on the bus too. <laughs> yes, he owns the bus. How about that? Uh, all right, okay. Did that that make you feel better. And yeah. he's one of those guys where he can't go anywhere unless he's driving. 
Okay. Well, there's a lot packed into that imagery. <laughs> I, I didn't realize is. it at first. I guess there is. Well, let's not shortchange Anthony Johnson here. No. We got to spend some time talking about him. Uh, clearly works Phil Davis over for, uh, 15 minutes and, and comes out the other side of it very much looking like an able contender in the 205 pound division. Uh, obviously this is just his first win back in the UFC, but he's won six or seven fights in a row, uh, going back to his dismissal in January 2012 when he lost to Vitor Belfort. Uh, where are we at with this dude? Like, I, uh, you know, clearly, as we talked about in round number one, we're stacking them kind of deep at light heavyweight right now in terms of guys that want a shot at John Jones. But uh, it would be hard to come out of this fight looking any better than Anthony Johnson looks right now. Yeah, he did look good. He also looked you see that guy now and you think it's just stupid that you used to fight at welterweight or used to pretend to fight at welterweight. Because, I mean, that's the thing is you you look at him now and you wonder, how did this guy ever make welterweight? Well, he didn't some of the time. And that was that was how he did it. But. You know, you see him now and you think like, okay, maybe that really was what he needed, like a, a chance to, to realize this could all slip away from him, to make some, some changes and then to come back. Uh, I mean, he's going to have to win, you know, at least one, probably two more fights just because of what we talked about. The dance card is so full. And it's one of those things where when you've got John Jones as the champion, what could really delay things is if he loses to Alexander Gustafson or Daniel Cormier, because then you know they're going to have to do a rematch. Right. Say he loses to Gustafson in, in the, the rematch of what was a close fight the first time. Say he loses a close decision the second time. Man, everybody then just fall back because you know that we're just going to let those guys heal and then run it back a third time. So anything could really delay the, the process a little more. Anybody who's being told like Daniel Cormier and Dan Henderson are right now, win one fight and then you'll be next in line should take that with a grain of salt because you don't know exactly how long you might have to wait. If you're Anthony Johnson, you know, just don't maybe don't clear off the space on the mantle for the UFC title just yet because it might be a while. Yeah, he's definitely going to have to fight one, maybe two more fights. Uh, probably you would think against guys that we would maybe not view as uh, uh, immediate title contenders themselves, just because the 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 guys who are at the very top of the division kind of have it all mapped out for the rest of the year. I think one of the things that Anthony Johnson set himself up for really well, though, is like if one of those dudes gets injured and they need a replacement. Entirely to possible. In, which, right. Yeah. Like like we said in the last round is totally something that could happen, because I think if you know, if if uh, if you're setting up for John Jones, Alexander Gustafson or John Jones, Daniel Cormier, it would be a bummer if one of those challengers got injured. But at the same time, if you can slide Anthony Johnson in there, like I don't think too many dudes are going to come complain that loudly about that because just because of how impressive Anthony Johnson looked against Phil Davis and not only looking impressive but looking dangerous which is one of the things that will always kind of like spike people's interest in a uh, in a late replacement fighter like if you have the power to come in and knock somebody out right yeah and I mean there's plenty of ways that some of those guys could fall out I mean Dan Henderson has to you know, get his post TRT situation right and go in there and fight a guy like Cormier. Cormier is a dude who uh, has been known to shatter his hands upside some dude's skulls from time to time. So there are a bunch of different ways that uh, something weird could happen and Anthony Johnson could get the call. So if you're hopefully Anthony Johnson has some people around him who are telling him that right now, dude, don't get too out of shape and, uh, you know, don't turn the old cell phone off uh, because you never know what could happen here. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number three. What is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I feel like we've complained about this uh, in various forums in the past, but man, I am I just about had it with the UFC's love of celebrity tweets. 
during an event. Preach, brother. You and me both. It's like it's like some having some name dropping friend who wants to tell you about all the B and C list celebrities they once sat next to at a coffee shop. Man, fucking Heidi Montag. Heidi Montag t- tweets about how she likes the UFC, and you got to show that shit on the broadcast. Man, I turned it on to watch the UFC. I didn't turn it on to watch fucking B-level celebrity Twitter. You fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I don't care how many celebrities like it, and we're really stretching the definition of celebrity with Heidi Montag, by the way. That is not my concern. Nobody likes it more because some pseudo-famous people claim to like it on social media. Are you fucking kidding me? Get that stuff off the screen and let us watch a fight. Monday. That's what that means. Montag means Monday in German. You, you ain't got to tell me nothing. <laughs> you know what? I, just as many years of German as you did. You know what I don't like about celebrity UFC tweets and, frankly, celebrity UFC fans in general is that every time somebody tweets something about the UFC, like, you know, The Rock or, I assume, Heidi Montag, uh, it's always like, can't wait for my girl Ronda Rousey to fight this weekend. Or like, oh, my guy John Jones is going to tear somebody up this weekend. It's never It never comes off like they're an actual UFC fan. I, oh, yeah. I, just no, once, I would like to see The Rock be like, can't wait for Max Holloway versus Andre Feely. That's going to be a dope fight for the hardcores. Yeah. Or Never like that. Somebody getting on there and be like, I know y'all saw my boy Joseph Benavidez going out there pulling off that jiu-jitsu. No, never happens. Well, Ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to a couple of good friends of ours in this segment, Vitor Belfort and Dana White. Oh, here we go. Because I know your guy, Vitor Belfort, crawled out from whatever cave he's been in the past couple of months trying to get off the TRT and uh, told MMAfighting.com that it's cool. He's ready to sub in for uh, Lioto Machida against Chris Weidman because, as he says, quote, I did all the tests that Nevada requires. I did it on my own, and I passed them all. There is nothing in my system anymore. God has blessed me. I'm ready now, and I'm waiting. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? <laughs> you just went out and did some tests on your own, and now you're cool. It's You're fine. You're ready to go. Also, wasn't there a way for him to prove that he passed that test that Nevada gave him? Wasn't that up to him to release the results, and uh, his lawyer decided that the results were not relevant? Yeah. No, he did, in fact, take a test. So if he wanted to prove that everything was out of his system, he could have done it at that time. Or, you know, he could do it. He could still do it now, which Dana White... He did make that point when he was talking to the media about it, but I have to give him also an extra are you fucking kidding me because of how his attitude about Vitor Belfort has changed now that testosterone replacement therapy is illegal. Here's Dana White. He's got to solve his problems with the Nevada State Athletic Commission, and when he does that, we'll figure it out. He's got a lot to work to do. He's got a lot of work to do. That shit just doesn't happen like that. You got to get on the agenda. He's got a lot of work to do. He's fooling himself if he thinks that if that's what he really thinks that he took a couple of home tests and he's ready to roll or whatever he did. Now, first of all, Dana Wright is right. A couple of home tests aren't going to prove anything. But also, are you fucking kidding me, dude? For like the past year, you've stood around telling us Vitor Belfort's test. Testosterone replacement therapy is nothing to worry about. We know he's not cheating. How we're, dare any of you question? Yeah, we're how te- dare you? We're testing the shit out of him. Don't don't ask too many questions about whether or not this is all on the level. And now suddenly it's illegal. And Dana White's always just like, oh well, that's Vitor Belfort's problem. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with us in the UFC, dude. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm kidding me. Well, that's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
Ben. We got an awful lot of email this week from co-main event podcast listeners who were a little bit taken aback by not only UFC women's bantamweight champion Ronda Rousey referring to Chris Cyborg Justino as an it during a recent media appearance, but also then Dana White uh, not only not decrying those statements, but sort of appearing to uh, double down on them when he broke out his... Uh, tired Andrew Dice Clay in the Poconos impression this past week uh, by cracking some jokes and doing an impression of Chris Cyborg Justino at the at the MMA Awards when he said she looked like Vanderlei Silva in a dress. Uh, trying to figure out how to parse this and how to get into this conversation, maybe just by asking, what's wrong with these people? What I wonder is, what does Vanderlei think when he hears this? He's like, wait, so was that a compliment to me? Or am I somehow being burned here too? Does Dana White think I'm a beautiful woman? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Vanderlei thinks from moment to moment. <laughs> well, you know, not that I was surprised that Dana White would not uh, turn on Ronda Rousey and insist on that she apologize or freeze her contract or suspend or do any of the stuff that they've done to other people. Because obviously, Ronda Rousey gets to play by a different set of rules when it comes to, to Dana White and the UFC. For him to go on that kind of tirade about it, I just, it seems like he's kind of losing touch with reality to not know how people are going to respond to that. Because man, you can't just go around here and say like, like when he says, like, here's the quote when he talks about her at the MMA awards. And first of all, I like to call out whoever edited the video for us for MMA Junkie because they did an awesome job of when Dana White is yelling about how she looked like Vanderlei Silva in a dress at the MMA Awards, immediately splicing in a photo of her at the MMA Awards where she looks pretty goddamn normal. Uh, she looks like an athlete. Yeah. Like look, a professional <laughs> women's fighter in a cocktail gown. That's right. Uh, but And he first wrote at one point, uh, she was walking up the stairs, jacked up on steroids beyond belief, and looked like Vanderlei Silva in a dress and heels. So that's what we're doing now, huh? We're just speculating wildly, insisting people are jacked up on steroids when we have no real knowledge of it, if that's true. Uh, I guess you can do that, he thinks, because she failed one drug test in the past. I just wonder if he's willing to to do that across the board because Vitor Belfort also faced a drug test in the past, man. Does that mean we talk about Vitor Belfort walking up the steps at the MMA awards jacked up on steroids beyond belief? Cause I don't think yeah. he would like that if we did that. Right. And a weird coincidence that that is actually the literal place where Vitor Belfort took that steroid test. <laughs> the one that's that, not relevant that we still don't have an answer to because it's, it's not relevant. It does though. Not, not that we want to spend an entire round again, uh, uh, Barry and Vitor Belfort, cause God knows we did enough of that last year, but like the, 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 the argument against Chris Cyborg Sandos in the UFC that Dana White lodges here, like if you could do a find and replace for her name and it would still, uh, apply just, just as acutely to Vitor Belfort, right? They both failed one drug test. Right. And if, and have had suspicion following them before and after for their entire careers. And if, if Dana White is going to come out and make the case that, that Chris Cyborg Santos has been on steroids the whole time, well, Vitor Belfort was on TRT for the past couple of years. And all we heard about that was that it was fine. It was on the level. And he's in Brazil it wasn't because of Globo and you should all shut the fuck up. And how dare you question him? Uh, I mean, but I mean, in a larger sense, I think it, it once again just brings to the, to the fore the fact that, uh, uh, you know, there's no real accountability in the sport, like because of, of 
how the UFC operates and uh, it being a privately held company, they it can pretty much say whatever it wants. And uh, you know, Ronda Rousey can can say whatever she wants. Dana White can say whatever he wants. There there won't be uh, uh, any uh, retribution or consequences if the company doesn't want there to be. You know, it's it's hard not to uh, to compare the Ronda Rousey statements to stuff Matt Mitrione said earlier. Uh, about Fallon Fox, and they came down pretty hard on him. Uh, I think handed him a suspension yeah. for it, didn't they? Uh, and, and so it's you know it, it creates this double double standard, and and uh, you know like you said, a, a world where you look at the comments and you you it, it's almost mind boggling how tone deaf they are because yeah. it makes you think like how could these well known people say this stuff in public to the media. And well, not, everybody standing there with recorders, right. you know, like right. we're cameras, you know, it's going to get out there. And like, how could they make those statements and not think that it was going to come back poorly on them? And I think that the answer to that is that they just don't care, maybe, you know, yeah. because they know nothing's going to happen to them. And, and I mean, the, the Ronda Rousey quotes, you could almost uh, not give her a pass, but you could almost understand them because. It is the fight game and like people say ridiculous shit about each other normally in the context of at some point we're going to fight and settle this shit. Uh, it's a lot weirder, I think, for the the president of the company to come out and, and like back the statement and then, you know, do his own and comedy. Take it routine. a little further. Yeah. Like, it's not the kind of thing that that David Stern would do. No. Or Roger Goodell. To me, it's just the kind of thing that gets really depressing, uh, probably because, you know, we've been through shit like this before. But it's just like, man, if you're a fight. If you're a fight fan, you're a fan of MMA, and uh, you're not a complete asshole, and you hear stuff like this, and you're just like, oh, God, this is my sport. This is the one. This is the thing I'm really into. This is the thing that I'm trying to tell my friends they should come over and watch, and there's all this kind of bullshit going on outside of it. It just makes you sad. It just You just want to bury your head in your hands, and, and you know... It, Thank God for the actual fights themselves, like the ones we had, like we had a, a really good event this weekend. It kind of reminds you like, okay, this is why I'm here. This other stuff is just terrible stuff I have to slog through. And it's not, not necessarily going anywhere. And the thing too is like, man, if this was, if the situations were reversed and somebody was trying to, you know, get out of fighting, you know, say a guy like Vitor Belfort or somebody else, uh, by saying like, oh, you know, did steroids, not even a man anymore. He's some kind of monster because he did so many steroids. And like Dana White would be just, outraged at how they were ducking the fight because that's what all this stuff comes off as it's a bunch of different excuses for why you don't want cyborg in the ufc should destroy the women's division she can't make 135 it's all this stuff all it comes off as as just like let's come up with reasons not to fight her we don't want to fight her we don't want to have her come in here and fight our golden girl ronda rousey it makes you both look like you're scared to have cyborg santos around or cyborg justino so yeah and you know what the weirdest part about that is is that i don't believe that like i don't believe that ronda rousey would be scared of cyborg santos because of or cyborg justino sorry uh everything that i know about ronda rousey leads me to believe that she would get in there with a goddamn grizzly bear and it could and, be kane velasquez in the right circumstances right yeah, that, that, you know, she would get in there with a wild animal. And if that animal had a, had a bad ground game, she would probably break its arm off. 
And so it, it, the whole thing strikes me as weird because we've never seen the UFC really try to protect a fighter before. We've never seen a champion in the position of Ronda Rousey who would be scared of another fighter after being as dominant as she has been. Like, so when I try to process it in my mind, I'm not sure that I believe that, but it, then it, it brings up the question like, well, well, like, you know, why not do the fight or why not bring her in and do it? And that makes you wonder like, uh, are these people saying what they really believe? Because God, I hope that's not true. There's the quote, uh, from, from Dana White, of course, turning it around on the media because this, this is our fault. You guys are the worst about this. If I sign Cyborg tomorrow, oh boy, you guys would have a fucking field day with that one. Fun stories to write about that one. Hit me about drugs every time we sit here. TRT is gone. We test every guy on the card. A guy hasn't tested positive for anything. The minute I sign her, you guys would have fun with that one. By the way, a guy hasn't tested positive for anything starting when? Because uh, Dennis Seaver like, just tested positive for something. I mean, when, when are you starting this hypothetical timeline where a guy hasn't tested positive for anything? All right, well, let, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll, we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff for this week before you go on your fabulous F- Florida vacation? Well, speaking of going on vacation, I don't know if you saw, but uh, on MMA Junkie last week, uh, we had Stephen Morocco had a story about, uh, hey, remember Scott Coker, CEO of Strikeforce? What's he doing now? Well, the his contract with, with Zufa that came as part of the sale uh, of Strikeforce is now complete. And he is not going to get back into the MMA business now, even though he could if he wanted to. Instead, he's going to take off, do some traveling. I'm just saying this is another one of those things that probably tells us something about, or at least tells me something about my uh, assumptions about MMA when I hear something like that. And the first thing I think is, thank God. Got to get out of here. Take your money and run, Scott Coker. Getting out of this game better off than when you got in. It's like when you're watching one of those uh, like heist movies or like drug dealer movies, and you just want them to like take their this you know huge pallet of cash that they have in a storage unit somewhere and just go. Just get on that that private jet that you bought and just just get out of here and never look back. Scott Coker is doing it. I'm just saying, good for you, Scott Coker. Go on. Get your travel on. Good for you. See the world. Yeah. Put your feet up. Just saying. And if you happen to be in the Gulf Coast area of Florida this week, I'll, I'll buy you my time, man. Uh, you guys can meet at the pub down in uh, in Fort Lauderdale or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure there's a nice place in a strip mall somewhere down there. It's all strip malls, right? Ben, I'm not even going to try to correctly pronounce this fighter's name. I'm just going to call her Beth Correa. Do you think that's close? Nope. Well, that's what I'm going with okay. because I still don't think anybody else is, is nailing it correctly. But uh you know what? I didn't know that we were going to be taking applications for new members of Team Dundas this week. <laughs> but uh Beth Correa, you're on the team. That's your girl, Beth Correa? Yeah. Oh, Betch. yeah. It's Big Betch, time. by the way. Betch, yeah. You should uh, probably learn to say her name if you're going to do going <laughs> to add her to the team. Not important. Uh Once I see the uh, GIF on the internets of Betch yeah, Correa fuck. doing the – uh the four horsewoman thing in the camera and folding down one finger, you're hired because that is awesome. It was pretty awesome. If a bunch of uh, female mixed martial arts fighters are going to go ahead and compare themselves to the greatest professional wrestling tag team uh, stable in history, and then you go out there and beat one of them and then tell MMA Junkie that you're quote-unquote bulletproof, I can get down with that. Just saying. That's your girl, Beth Correa. Well, that's going to do it for uh, the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week. Uh, 
to, I believe, prepare for another event. There's a, uh, an event. It's like a Wednesday night event. I think, yeah, next week, next week we'll, we'll figure out what fights are on there, and then uh, we'll be back to talk about that. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can go to comainevent.com and send us an email, or hell, I don't know, sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Be sure to uh, check the site tomorrow for the rules and regulations for the White Elephant Essay Contest, uh, because that kicks off this week. As for right now, now though, we are done, we are through, we are out. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, though, Betch Korea's nickname is the Pitbull. Uh, oh. How does that work for, you know, web hosting well, domain names? Not good for branding or SEO, because that could be anything.